Read from Genesis 49 and verse 29 all the way through to the end of chapter 50 as we come to conclude our series in the life of Joseph and his family. If you don't have a Bible with you, obviously don't worry, you should be able to uh, see the scriptures that we look at on the screen behind me, so you can follow, follow there. Genesis chapter 49, verse 29, it says this, then he gave them these instructions, I'm about to be gathered to my people, bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field at Ephron the Hittite the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. There Abraham and his wife Sarah were buried. There Isaac and his wife Rebekah were buried, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave in it were brought from the Hittites. When Jacob had finished giving instructions to his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalmed him, taking a full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming, and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I'm about to die. Bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt. Besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the threshing floor of Etad, near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Etad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That's why the place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephraim the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt together with his brothers and all the others who'd gone with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent words to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, 
Please forgive the sins of the servants of, your, of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. The whole way through as we've been looking at uh, the life of Joseph, his brothers, the latter years of his father, Jacob, we've, we've really been spending time looking at a story that shows God's total control over all things and gives us an amazing example of total forgiveness, complete and utter forgiveness. I was reminded just this week thinking of other stories that I know, real stories of, of total forgiveness. Um, I don't know if you've come across Corrie Tenboom, who, uh, a Dutch woman who, who lived whilst uh, Holland was occupied by the Nazis, and she uh, and others were attempting to uh, keep Jews safe. Uh, eventually they're discovered and they too are sent to concentration camp. So Corrie and her sister Betsy were in a concentration camp and uh, she survives, her sister dies there. And only a few years after the war, 1947, it's amazing really, she goes to Munich, she goes into Germany, this now defeated nation, and she speaks in a church there. She's, she's carrying a message of God's forgiveness and she's telling the congregation there when you turn to Jesus when you repent of sin he takes your sin and he throws it into the sea never to be seen again utterly and completely dealt with she says and the meeting finishes everyone stands up and starts to file out but there's a man there and he's coming in the other direction he's walking to her and for a moment then she maybe has a few seconds before he arrives before her to realize he's one of the guards. He's one of the guards at the concentration camp where my sister died. And he comes up to her and says, this message of forgiveness is amazing. Uh, after the war, I've discovered the Christian gospel and I've received God's forgiveness. But I'd like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And she takes a moment and she realizes, well, this is the message that I've come with. This is the gospel that I believe in. 
I am relating to a God who every day is forgiving my sin. He's wiped my sin clean. And as an act of faith, but probably also cold blood, she just then raises, raises her hand, shakes his hand, and forgives him for the horrors that he, uh, he took part in. I was also reminded uh, a story more recent. I think John popped this on Facebook a little while ago of, of Ray and Vi uh, Donovan. And they're just sharing the story of, of what happened to them, what happened to their son. In 2001, their son, uh, Chris, was just senselessly, uh, violently beaten and he died on the street. No, no reason, really, just absolutely senseless. They are utterly devastated. And they then, kind of, in a video interview, they, they recount the moment when they are just on the floor, but realizing we have to forgive. We're going to have to forgive them for what they've done. And they recount the moment then, 10 or 11 years later, uh, when the perpetrator uh, is released from prison and they met him and said, we're about to go into the room and say hello to the man who killed our son. And they give him a hug because they, they came to realize that the rage and the anger that they felt on account of what happened was kind of attractive. It felt like it gave them a sense of power over the situation, but realized more and more, actually, we will be imprisoned by our bitterness unless, unless we forgive and forgive from the heart. And they also kind of recount uh, how, in a sense, it was a decision of faith that their feelings didn't always match with. And there'd be times through life when, when, the, when the anger can bubble up, but they know they've resolved it. They know might, maybe also they need to repeat it. They need to repeat the forgiveness that they, they'd already offered. It's like when something so massive, something so traumatic happens, the initial impact, you know, like if you drop a rock in a pond, the initial impact, the initial splash has finished, has died down. But there's a succession of waves and ripples that, that go out. And years later, they could still be experiencing one of those ripples. Oof, still hurts. It still gets us. It can still anger us. But we have forgiven. We, we are forgiving and we'll forgive them again. You can't get there without God. You can't get there without, uh, without knowing him, without knowing the forgiveness that God has brought to, uh, brought to us. Here in Genesis, it's, a, it's another story, the most powerful story in the Old Testament of, of total forgiveness. When Joseph's brothers get so fed up and angry and jealous of their brother that they throw him in a pit. They're poised to, ha to, to kill him, then realize, well, perhaps we can just enslave him as well instead. So they send him into slavery. They forget all about him. Good riddance to our younger brother Joseph, they were saying at the time. And Joseph finds himself uh, in Egypt, a slave. He'll later be imprisoned. And through all of that time, trying to, trying to work it through. And, but he does. And when the time comes, 
God has orchestrated when his brothers turned back up, not even realizing who he is as now the prince of Egypt, effectively. Um, he realizes it's for this time, and he's resolved it. And he forgives. We read that, we saw that in chapter 45. It's an amazing story of total forgiveness. And what it does is it shines a light for us on what Jesus has done for us. By dying on the cross, by taking our sin, the punishment that we deserved, he took it completely that you and I might know total forgiveness. It's an outrage, really. It's a scandal of grace. It's not deserved at all. But by virtue of God's great love, when we were still enemies, when we were still against him, Christ died for us. And that's the incredible news of the gospel. This is what uh, came to the attention. This is what Jesus taught on so many different occasions. A message of total forgiveness. There's a father and he's got two sons. And one of those sons thinks, I've had enough with living with my dad. And the father kind of represents God. And, and the younger brother represents people who've just chosen to rebel against him. And really, to one degree or another, we've all chosen to do that. Run away from God. Give me my inheritance now. I'll take half of your wealth now. And he's off. And he squanders his wealth. Um, and life doesn't go well for him. Perhaps it's a, he lives a, the high life for a while, then he comes crashing down. And he realizes, oh no, I've totally blown it. I've totally messed up. And it says there in Luke chapter 15, that as Jesus is telling that story, that he came to his senses, realized even my father's servants are provided for. I could go back. I know I'm not worthy of it, but perhaps at least... My father, if he can't treat me like a son anymore, will treat me like one of his slaves, and at least I'll have something to eat. And so the man goes back. Maybe you know the story, but in that situation, in that position, coming back to the father's house, kind of inching forwards, wondering what sort of welcome the younger son might receive, and he sees the father kind of like maybe on some sort of terrace or veranda, uh, looking out, looking in the distance, and he sees that it's his son, his lost son, who squandered half of his money, and rather than just kind of fold his arms and say, yeah, well, I'll wait till he gets here. I'll hear him out. He runs to him. He pegs it. My son has returned. You're here. Come in. But Dad, I'm so sorry about the money. Forget about the money. We're going to have a party. You've come back. You're my child. I love you and I forgive you. And that's a story that Jesus told to say that's what God's like. And so the disciples and those early believers would carry this message with them of repentance and forgiveness. Repent. Come to your senses. Turn back to God. He'll forgive you. He'll run to you. He'll love you. He'll throw a party for you. He'll draw you in. And this is what Joseph has done for his brothers. He sees them coming. He does test them out a little bit. But he makes it clear. I have totally forgiven. And sometimes we, can be, we, we might have reason, perhaps not as serious as Corrie Ten Boom or Ray and Vi Donovan. We might have reason where we need to forgive somebody. I can remember uh, hearing to kind of like 
respected friend leads a church elsewhere, just describing how he'll sometimes try and bring people through to a place of freedom in order to forgive. And he tries to bring to that point of saying, before God, of this other person, be they alive or be they dead, but whatever's happened in the past, try and bring them to the point by looking at Scripture of saying, God, I forgive them, they owe me nothing. That was Joseph's message to his brothers. You don't owe me anything. You did intend to harm me. But God has been working this out for good and for the saving of many lives. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to punish you. I'm not going to enslave you. You're my family. If God is about saving lives, how can I be about killing them and having revenge on his brothers? He sees the plans and purposes of God. As we're here then, I'm going to call it chapter 50, allowing for the fact that I read a few verses from chapter 49. Here in chapter 50, it's like it's the end of an era. They received that forgiveness 17 years ago. They moved to Egypt. They've been living in the goodness of that forgiveness for 17 years. But here, it's an end of an era. It's an end of an era, and we're confronted with death at the beginning of the passage and at the end. We're told about Jacob's death. We're then told about Joseph's death. The chapter confronts us with the end of an era. It's quite amazing, really, to consider what God has done in Jacob, first of all. For all those years, we've seen he's just been locked into self-pity because of what has happened, and we can understand that in many levels. But so many times, he'll refer to his death and say, oh, you're going to bring my grey head down to the grave. But God has kind of rescued him and freed him from that self-pity so that he can say, not you're going to bring my head down to the grave, but I'm about to be gathered to my people. I'm about to rejoin my people. I'm going to go and be with Abraham. I'm going to go and be with Isaac. This is, this is, a, uh, this is a man who's facing death, but with faith. He's looking forward. We see how Joseph uh, handles the situation. How he, He's confronted with the death of his father and he's hit by a truckload of grief and he weeps over him and he kisses him and he sets about a plan to give him a state funeral kind of pharaoh style this is almost the kind of treatment that a pharaoh would have received when they died 40 days of embalming 70 days when Egyptians are mourning for him they they go on the journey back to that cave that belongs to Israel there's another seven days of mourning there. They, they lament loudly and bitterly, so much so that the locals name the place the mourning of the Egyptians. It, it, you know, when hundreds of people rock up on chariots and spend days and days weeping and crying, that tends to go down in history as, as a significant time. So the place gets named. So Joseph responds with that kind of grief, he then returns to Egypt. But what about the brothers? How are they responding to this end of an era? How are they responding to the death of their father? They're included in that process of mourning that we read about over lots of verses. They're there. They're not kind of the focus of attention. It seems to be very much about Joseph and all these dignitaries and Egyptians. But the brothers are there. And then we get to this next scene. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, obviously they saw that about 77 days ago. It was a long time, but the, all the implications, all the mixture of emotions is all filtering 
through. No doubt they're grieving, but their primary response, uh, the author's picking up on here, is their guilt. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs they've done? They have received Joseph's forgiveness. They've been living at peace in that sense. And they have been totally and utterly forgiven, which we saw in chapter 45. They're totally forgiven, but now they're realizing they're not totally convinced. The death of their dad a massive change. It's kind of inevitable at some point it was going to happen. This big change in their life that they have no control over starts to nudge at their security, starts to poke the old guilt. They're remembering all the wrongs they've done to Joseph. And now, when Jacob's no longer around, they're probably thinking, what's to stop Joseph getting his own back now? Surely he must hold a grudge against us. We're done for. What are we going to do? And their lives, well, living with that kind of guilt, there's any number of different things that are going on, any number of different reactions. They respond in any number of different ways. They're scared. What if? I mean, that's the classic question of fear, isn't it? What if? I don't know what the future holds, but what if Joseph holds a grudge? What are we going to do? Their response to that fear is to lie. They're dishonest. Um, your father left these instructions. No, he didn't. Chapter 49 was his instructions. In reading the passage, we're likely to understand, we're probably supposed to understand, they made it up. What if he pays us back? So they sent words to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you're to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive us, basically, as they say. Your dad wanted you to do that. But it's lying. He didn't say that. Um, it's a, uh, something that they've kind of made up to cover the fact that they're so scared. So they're lying, they're, they're manipulative, they're approaching Joseph when he's vulnerable, when he's grieving. Are they really pledging some kind of new allegiance or are they just coming trying to pull on his heartstrings? We're your slaves. Your father said, you have to forgive us. But basically that means they're suspicious. They're suspicious of Joseph. Even 17 years after being forgiven, they're thinking the worst of him. They're assuming that he'll want to get his own back. Even when... In 17 years, all they've experienced is his loving kindness. And so what they're doing is they're projecting their doubts, their fears, their issues onto Joseph. They were the ones who held a grudge. They were the ones who wanted to get their own back. And that was real all the way back in chapter 37. Joseph doesn't hold a grudge. Joseph doesn't want to get his own back. But it's all got twisted in their minds. Our relationship with our Saviour, Jesus, has the same dynamic. By faith in Christ, we receive total forgiveness. You could look at Psalm 103 and verse 3 and see there how the, uh, I think it's David, 
says, praise the Lord, O my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins. That's what David marveled at. In Christ, we see how it came about by his death on the cross. And he'd spend time uh, with his disciples after his death and after his resurrection, explaining the the scripture to him. He'd say in Luke chapter 24, verse 45, that he then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. What are they witnesses of? They're witnesses of God's incredible forgiveness in Jesus, total forgiveness. Paul writes a letter and he enthuses about it. In uh, well, we could look in a number of places, but we'll just turn to Ephesians briefly. Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Here is the demonstration of God's amazing grace, God's amazing kindness, God's amazing generosity that he has forgiven us in Jesus. Jesus' blood cleanses us from all our guilt. Maybe what we experience from time to time is some ripple effect. Some, some challenge, some change in life that we couldn't control takes place and we are, like those brothers, taken all the way back to something dreadful in our past that we know that we said, that we know we did it, we know we thought it, perhaps we had a grudge, perhaps we were violent, perhaps something else, but we, we encounter some ripple, might be 17 years later, but somehow we're kind of taken back, oh, just the terrible things that I've done, the, the, the wrong, I've, maybe other people that I've treated so badly, uh, or that revelation that really, whilst, yes, I've treated other people badly, it's against God that I've sinned. Oh, my goodness. And something can just remind us of what's happened before. Maybe we come into a season of life and we encounter our own grief, our own loss, our own disappointment somehow. Life changes around us or we change in some way or another. And then we start to think to ourselves, ponder, what if God's changed? What if God's changed his mind? I mean, I'm convinced all the way back then that God's totally in control. I, I was convinced that God's totally forgiven everyone who turns to Christ. But you know, there's just been so much going on recently, so much change, I'm a little bit wobbled. And doubts can creep in. How does God regard me now? And we start to think that God might have changed just because something else, perhaps quite significant, has as well. And what can happen is that we kind of just live life in a way moving forward, but kind of just looking over our shoulder the whole time. We're preoccupied with past. We're, we're preoccupied with 17 years ago. We're, we're preoccupied with things that we've done wrong. 
even if we have repented and received forgiveness, or we might even be preoccupied with things that people have done against us. Now, sometimes we do glance back. I don't know if you catch yourself, if, you're, if, if you drive, universal sign for driving. Universal sign for God. We did a few actions earlier on. Here's a universal sign for driving. Um, and really, most of the time, what you're supposed to do when you're driving is look forward out the windscreen. But have you ever done that thing where your attention is caught by something behind you that you can see in the mirror? But rather than kind of glance in the mirror for a moment and stay looking forward, your eyes kind of get glued to the mirror behind you. You know, it's not that great idea to go like that for too long. You now, the mirrors are there, but the, main, the thing to really look through is the windscreen. Sometimes we have moments when we look back. We might consider where we've come from or what God has done in our lives. Actually, Paul did that, but it was kind of, for him, it was expressing gratitude. He can look back, he can look behind him, and he can say, I used to be a violent man, a blasphemer, I persecuted people, I'm responsible for some people dying for their Christian faith. So when I briefly look back, it blows me away again that God should have ever extended his grace and mercy to me. I mean, I am amazed. He's not, in that sense, he's not preoccupied. He can't, I suppose he hasn't forgotten the sorts of things that he's done. But his life has been redefined by this amazing forgiveness. And that's what he's amazed by. So, oh, when I consider God's grace, when I consider God's patience, when I consider God's mercy, it's, it's amazing that even I should be called to his service. He's looking forwards. He's looking ahead. He's looking to a God that he's called to serve. He's looking to a God he can trust in. And that's even what Jacob and Joseph can do. We're looking ahead. We know we're about to die, but we're looking ahead to what God's going to do. We're, looking at, we're, look, we're kind of facing the end of an era. But we're trusting God. He's leading the way. Maybe it feels like that. Maybe it's not literal grief, but just like, oh, it feels like life's come to an end. Everything familiar has stopped. There's some new uncharted territory. I don't quite know exactly what God's going to do in the here and now. We've had this kind of fairly stable situation in life for a couple of decades. Now, everything seems up in the air. Jacob doesn't get caught up in self-pity. Neither does Joseph. They're looking ahead by faith. These brothers are wrestling with their, with their guilt. They're wrestling with stuff that's gone on in the past. Now, it's inevitable that Jacob was going to die. Was it inevitable they should have struggled so much and had so much guilt? I don't know. Perhaps it's not uncommon for us just sometimes to experience a ripple in life that unsettles us, brings something back to the surface which is painful. Partly that's why we, when we thought about this next batch of life groups, we thought, oh, let's, let's do a course called Finding Freedom that Ginny is going to lead with Stuart. Just because sometimes you, could have been, you might have been a believer for years and yet some old guilt or some old forgiveness still has the pot, still kind of hampers you in your walk with God. You're looking over your shoulder the whole time. And God does want you to be free. It's not inevitable just to think, oh, well, this is life now. It's all good news, really, but basically, don't tell anyone. We all just feel 
really, really guilty in an ongoing way. We sing about the grace of God, but we live under guilt. Yeah, all right, okay. Oh, happy day. As if that's what Christ has come. No, he's come to set us free. Maybe the effect of going through this series at the end of Genesis is it has stirred up a few things. Well, if there's some freedom for you to find, not telling you what you have to do, you could consider that one. What they encounter, what Joseph's brothers encounter in a season when so much has changed is the same amazing grace in how Joseph responds. We don't have loads of time. We'll worship again in a few moments. But let's just look at how Joseph responds. And if you see how Joseph responds to his brothers when they're in turmoil again, perhaps that will help you to see what God is like and what Jesus thinks and feels about you when you're being stirred up by old stuff, old baggage, old hurts, old guilt. We see that Joseph, first of all, he weeps when the message comes through. Maybe that's a whole mix of things. Maybe just hearing about the wrongs that he had suffered reminds him and takes him back. It was really painful, you know, guys. Maybe he's also sad for them when he comes to realize they've not been convinced all this time they've been living under this guilt. Maybe, and in all likelihood, he's actually slightly upset and offended. After all this time, they haven't believed what I said. In that way, Jesus doesn't congratulate us for a lack of faith. But then look how reassuring Joseph is to these brothers when they turn up and fall before him. What's the first thing he says? Joseph addresses their immediate situation right from the outset. Don't be afraid. Remember Jesus, when he turns up resurrected, all his disciples failed him, they fled. What does he say when he appears behind a locked door in front of them, now resurrected, says, peace be with you. <gasps> no, peace be with you. He says to them, am I, Joseph says this, am I in the place of God? I mean, it's remarkable because he was in quite a powerful position. He wasn't like, well, I better behave so that I get that promotion. He got the promotion. He couldn't get any higher. He was effectively the prince of Egypt, the most powerful nation on the planet. He could do as he pleased. He had been lifted to that position Maybe there was, therefore, some temptation. I could get my own back. But he's totally resolved. Am I in the place of God? He's seeing what God's done. When they want to focus on their evil, Joseph can say, yeah, it was evil. You intended to harm me. But now he's looking forward again. But there is a God who is working through all of this, weaving it all together so that I might be here and so that countless lives might be saved in the midst of a massive famine. Not least of all, the family of God. God sent me ahead of you. 
He can see what God is doing. And if God's purpose and if God's intention was to save lives, he's going to keep in step with God. He's going to keep submitting to God. He's humble to the Lord. He could have done anything. But whatever position he's in, he's wanting to follow God. Follow God's lead. We have a saviour who is in the position of God. That's the position he was in when he was presented with a woman caught in the act of adultery that Anne read out earlier on. Everyone leaves because everyone's got some sinful past they don't want to acknowledge. And Jesus, the sinless one, God in the flesh, is left with her. Where have they all gone? Hasn't anyone condemned you? Well, neither do I. He extends grace. That's what our saviour is like, the one who came not to, not to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down as a ransom for many. And this was all according to the plan and purpose of God. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Speaking of the suffering servant, we now know to be Jesus. It says, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's right to say, it was my sin that held him there. It's right to say, I'm responsible. My sin is responsible for the death of Jesus. But then it's right to lift our heads and say, and God meant it for good to bring about the saving of many lives. Notice as well, part of Joseph's reassurance to his brothers, I will provide for you. Not just you're forgiven, but I'm really not that interested, I've got nothing more to do with you. You're forgiven, uh, I'm going to provide for you. Do, you know, do you see what he's doing? All he's doing is repeating what he's already said before. From their point of view, so much has changed. And life is in turmoil. From Joseph's point of view, nothing's changed here. I forgave you in chapter 45, but it's probably a bit earlier than that in actual fact. I told you in chapter 45 you're totally forgiven. Now 17 years later, I'm telling you again, you're totally forgiven. I told you I'd provide for you for the rest of your days. And now, here, in this situation, I'm telling you again, I will totally provide for you in the future. We marvel at this amazing grace. And if you're in some kind of internal battle, how does God think about me now? When you're reminded, go to the scripture, go to the Lord, go to this story, go to the gospel and be reminded. There is an amazing love that has covered over all my sin. Transcended it all. All. 